Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberry.it using the discount code PODCAST. In this episode of the Cyberry Podcast, we sit down with Richard Hummel, the manager of threat research at Arbor Networks, the security division of NetScout. Speaking with Mike Gruen, the CISO of Cyberry, Richard talks about DDoS attacks in the gaming industry and how IoT devices should scare everyone. Hi, and welcome. Today, we're talking to Richard Hummel from NetScout about DDoS attacks and general cyber threat landscape. Um, Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Cool. Do you want to give a little bit of background about yourself? Absolutely. So, Richard Hummel, um, I manage the ACERT research team over here. Um, We focus on threat intelligence in in the DDoS space. We look at some APT. We do some crime. Um, I've been with the company for about two years. Uh, Previous to that, I was working for uh, FireEye, uh, previously to that was um, <clears throat> ISAID Partners, which we were acquired by FireEye. So I've been in kind of this threat intel space for a long time and moved around from crime um, to kind of the DDoS, a little bit more uh, DDoS CPT and crime. Uh, previous to that, I was uh, in government contracting doing primarily um, regional type tracking for espionage related campaigns and threats. And then did four years in the army prior, prior to that. So I've been around kind of this for about 12, almost 13 years now. Uh, in the threat intel space, doing any number of things. Um, so I come here, you know, from NetScout with uh, more of kind of a DDoS background uh, today. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so maybe um, maybe that's a great place to start is like, can you give a little background? What is DDoS? What does it mean? A little bit of history right there. Um, so, I mean, obviously the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is, is as NetScout as a company, we're focused on service assurance. Um, the internet really connects the world together. And if you don't have access to the internet, Obviously, you, your livelihood is, is not there. You're not able to conduct business, especially now, uh, right now, where you have like the majority of the workforce is working from home. You have schools everywhere. They're all using internet-connected technologies in order to continue learning, continue business. Um, so now more than ever, it's really critical to have kind of that service assurance where you're making sure that adversaries can't just saturate your network and your bandwidth with this massive amount of traffic and really take it down. Um, and so when we think about DOS, you're, you're denying services to something, right? Whether that's an application, um, access to a website, or it's connecting to uh, your service providers, whatever it might be, um, that is a denial of service event. So when you think of DDoS, you're talking about distributed denial of service. Now you're talking about botnets or massive networks of reflectors, amplifiers that can take a command from an adversary somewhere amplify that traffic at a a specific individual or multiple individuals uh, with the express intent of taking down that network. And so that's where we come in with the DDoS. Um, And I guess what we're looking at here as as well as like understanding kind of what it looks like in the landscape today, um, what we've seen so far since um, the pandemic was announced, um, and really kind of how IoT plays into that is really what I wanted to cover uh, in this podcast today. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, great segue into what are we seeing with regard to the pandemic and, and things that have happened since then? Certainly. So, um, just a little bit of background kind of on, on where we look at some of these different threats. Um, <clears throat> we look at the higher higher picture. So, we're looking at global events. We're looking at global trends, statistics. We, we break that down by region. We look at the different verticals. So, you know, is it a health industry? Is it an education? Is it finance and you'll see that like there's some higher level order of of these verticals like telecom right that's all encompassing so you got your wireless you got your wired you have satellite all kind of falls in the same bucket 
Um, and so when you actually look at DDoS transit metrics, like 95% of the activity is, is telecommunications. Um, and that makes sense, right? Because all of the consumers are, are, are there. And really the, the biggest targeting DDoS attacks that we see is actually gaming related. Um, so a lot of people don't really understand or know that, but the reality is, is that uh, the gaming industry is huge. Um, and not only that, but gambling as a result of esports is really, really big. And the vast majority of attacks out there are against consumer um, IP addresses or gamers that are in competitions or there's some sort of underground esport going on or there's some betting and they're trying to take down networks so that their adversary can beat them. And this is like the dynamic that we live in, right? So this is what we're seeing in a lot of these things. And that's no different now um, since the pandemic occurred. In fact, now more than ever, kids are at home, they're playing games, right? And, and it's really easy for um, somebody to go out there in an underground form, pay 50 bucks, and they can launch an attack at anyone, really. And you can get IP addresses. Like if you're, if you're playing a game against somebody and you're also involved in like VoIP communications, there's ways to pull their IP address, which possibly go to their, their home address, right? Where they're actually gaming from or whatever portal they're using to access that game. And so now you have the IP address and all you got to do is say, I want to launch this booter and stressor attack at that IP address and I'm going to pay 50 bucks and now I have a hundred gigabit per second attack going at them. That basically brings down the network. And now they can't communicate with their allies. You know, whatever whatever it is they're playing is, is wrong, right? Um, and so it takes them down and, and it's just, it's kind of frightening. Actually, when you look at the numbers, um, about 80% of the targets that we've seen so far targeted um, since the pandemic was announced back uh, March 11th at this point. Um, 80% of those targets are broadband operators. And almost every single attack that we see against broadband is typically the result of attacks against gaming. Um, and so you, it's not even attacks against like the game companies themselves or their servers, right? right. Sometimes it might be. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out when you first started talking about gaming. I was thinking like to what end, right? But if you're going after the individual players, now right. it becomes more, I can see where, where it sort of comes from. Exactly. So in, in, there are times when these attacks go after the organizations themselves or specific servers, like uh, when there's new games announced um, or there's DLC content, or maybe there's a launch of a game and they're doing like online downloads only, especially now, right? Because mm -hmm. you can't really go to a GameStop if they're not open. So how are you going to download your game? Well, you have to download from server somewhere. Um, and so if people, you know, maybe they don't like the release or maybe they don't like the the vendor that's distributing a game. Right. Um, they can find their, their public IP spaces. They can look up an organization by the ASN, right? The autonomous system name and, and be able to say, hey, this belongs to EA Sports or this belongs to some other big organization. Uh, let me just go ahead and launch an attack at these guys. And maybe that just like hits one portion of them in a certain segment of a region of, of North America, right? Maybe it takes them down, maybe it doesn't, but you know, that's what we're seeing, yeah. Right, and I can see why it's way more effective against individuals, right? If I'm a if, I, if I'm a company, I have services and systems that are sort of designed to detect and respond to that, as opposed to my home network not ready for a DDoS attack. Exactly. Well, and the thing is, is like all of these home networks, all these consumer routers, they're still using an ISP space somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of ISPs have uh, protection against these things, right? But the reality is, is when you're in a competitive game like this a couple of minutes could be the difference between whether you lose a match or you win a match. Hmm. And that could have millions of dollars riding on it, depending on you know what kind of game it is and who's betting on it, especially in Asian cultures. This is very, very big and prominent. 
Um, and so like, even if you manage to just knock out their internet for 30 seconds, which I mean, it's not that hard to do. Right. And so like attackers are getting a much smarter. In fact, uh, some of the techniques that we've seen that we've covered actually in, in one of our more recent reports was looking at an attacker's kind of capabilities and what they've evolved to. Um, it used to be that I have an IP address. I want to attack it. I'm just going to go after that one IP address and I'm going to use a certain protocol or vector or a certain type of attack. Um, and maybe this is a UDB attack against like DNS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to flood it with DNS. I'm going to hit everything I can against it. That still happens. That's what we would call basically a single vector type of attack. But what we're seeing now is not necessarily the high volume attacks because we know how to mitigate these now, right? Most, most carriers out there, uh, most enterprises out there understand that if they get a UDP attack, it's against one IP address and it's this vector and it reaches a certain threshold, I know that's a DDoS attack, I'm just gonna drop it on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. So the largest attack on record we came out with last year was one point terabit per second of attack traffic, huge, right? Right. Uh, the reality is, is that took down the customer for less than three minutes. Right. Um, and so like we, we just, we know how to mitigate these now. So now what we're seeing is smaller volumes. We're seeing 100 to, you know, 200, 100 to 400 gigabit per second ranges. But now we're seeing that combined with a bunch of different types of attacks. So you might have DNS, NTP, CLDAP, um, MySQL, you, um, ARMS, App Remote Management System all of these different things in one singular attack. In fact, um, we, we recorded at least one attack in the past six months that used 17 different protocols or vectors in one attack. And so now, instead of just mitigating one aspect of that, you have to have your mitigation and defense techniques configured to hit all of those protocols and all those vectors at the same time. Um, now, you take that and you combine it with something called uh, carpet bombing. Right. What carpet bombing is, is it basically says, instead of going after one IP address, I'm going to find the entire network block. So maybe I'm going after a CIDR block of, let's just say, 100 different uh, IP addresses, just for sake of size here. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just say that for my mitigation techniques, I can mitigate traffic, but I'm not going to set my actual scrubbing of traffic until it reaches five gigabit per second of threshold volume. Right. Well, what happens now when you hit all 100 of those IP addresses with 4.9 gigabits per second of traffic. You never hit the threshold at any one of those, and so you're not treating your mitigation. You're spreading it out, but now you're saturating the entire network block. And so this is what we would call carpet bombing. Oh, interesting. Now, another thing, and and this gets more complicated, right? right? Complex, this is what attackers are doing. They're they're adding more and more capabilities. Now they're, they're adding TCP SYN attacks. Um, and TCP SYN attacks have historically been very difficult to mitigate just because of the way that TCP protocol works versus UDP. There's a lot more that goes into mitigating that type of thing. So not only are you adding more vectors, not only are you targeting more IP uh, spaces inside of a block, you're also adding a, a much harder to, to mitigate protocol. Um, and that all combines. Uh, yeah, you can take down a target for 30 seconds for a few minutes. And that has a, a big lasting consequence, especially on, on the gaming industry, for sure. Interesting. Are you seeing it? I mean, I know like healthcare is an obvious one as well with the pandemic that that's been in the news about things that have been gone after. But um, are we seeing? Are you seeing anything in other areas? Like, I could see if I want to go after a company now that I know everybody's remote, maybe trying to figure out what their VPN is and going after that to prevent users from even logging into the system. Sure. So now, so here's here's one thing to keep in mind. Actually, we we kind of did this exercise just in the past few weeks because. 
the actual traffic we're seeing on VPNs has has just risen astronomically, right? Um, and you see lots of industry reports coming on saying, yeah, this VPN is just, it's using so much data. But here's the reality. The only VPN nodes that most people can find out are public ones. Mm. And corporations shouldn't be using public VPNs, right? So there, there's plenty of tools out there. There's GitHub repositories. We can literally go and download uh, every single known VPN node out there, right? And this is going to be for all of your public, you know, kind of uh, commercial license type paid things. Mm-hmm. But most organizations, enterprises, carriers, if they do have an in-house VPN, uh, they're not going to publicize their nodes, right? Right. Um, so it is very difficult to be able to identify those. And even, even working in the space and understanding what we're looking for, it's still being able to find those nodes and actually launch GPS attacks to them is very, very difficult. Um, so if you have some sort of inside knowledge, sure, maybe we could see that, but honestly, we don't see a whole lot. Right. So maybe it would be a malicious, someone who, a malicious former employee or current employee or something like that. That's huge, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and I know you guys have plenty of insider threat segments here on Cybrary, so I'm sure you're very familiar with that. But yeah. So like another aspect of this too is what if we're just looking for certain protocols, right? Because OpenVPN or, or various other types of VPNs use certain protocols to connect, right? Um, and so maybe if you're sniffing a network somewhere and you see a lot of that traffic coming through using a certain protocol, it might be encrypted, so you can't really see a whole lot. But if you do happen to get in the middle of that and you're able to decrypt that sessions, you might understand that, hey, this is actually VPN traffic. But again, that's like having prior access, right? right. So it's not like somebody on the external is going to be obvious, like, oh, yeah, that's VPN traffic. Now I'm going to attack it. Like, that's right. really difficult to do. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, so... No, please yeah, I was just going to kind of talk a little bit about the different vectors that we're seeing, um, you know, because I, I talk about these techniques mm-hmm. and like, what are we seeing? And, and just from a, a quick high level, um, the primary vectors that we're seeing come across is DNS attacks um, using UDP, UDP DNS attacks. Um, and then we're seeing NTP, um, which is a huge one because there's tons of NTP servers out there that are just response for reflection amplification. Uh, CLDAP is another one. Um, and then TCP send. Those are kind of our top four right now, um, followed very closely by like IP fragmentation. Cool. Um, so maybe for the people who are, you know, maybe a little newer to the space, could you maybe elaborate on what each one of those four is? Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously DNS is what you're going to use to yeah. resolve. You know, if you go into an, uh, a website and you say google.com, right, that's your domain. And so you're going to have some sort of IP address that is hosting that domain. So uh, what attackers will do is they'll find the DNS servers out there. And they have specially crafted packets that if they send to it, often there's spoofing traffic, right? So I'm going to spoof uh, the IP address I want to actually target. And I'm going to send them a certain packet that doesn't really end, that leaves an open connection. And so now all these DNS servers everywhere are going to respond with this traffic. And maybe they might add some parameters to make sure those packets are really large in size. And so now I've got all these DNS servers everywhere responding to my server when I didn't actually send anything, right? Because it was spoofed. And right. so now I'm being saturated with all this traffic. And this is what we, this is the reflection amplification aspect of these DDoS attacks. Um, same is going to be true for the rest of the protocols. Right. Is you're going to be spoofing, you're going to be spoofing the source. Um, and then you're also going to be crafting that packet in such a way that you're getting maximum effort. And so when we actually look at some of these different vectors, um, like right now, I think we're tracking about 29 different vectors you can use for reflection amplification. Mm-hmm. Some of them have a one-to-one ratio, right? So one packet generates one packet, right? That's right. not a huge reflection uh, capability or amplification factor. Right. However, if, if I look at Memcached, which 
Um, I don't know if you, you read the news maybe about seven or eight months ago. That was huge, right? Right. He modeled this as this unknown vector and, and it had this massive amplification factor. And I think we saw as high as one packet generating up to 52,000 others, um, which is huge, right? When you right. consider like a lot of these other vectors, like we've never seen anything that big before. Um, and so it took very few of these uh, servers that could respond to this to launch a 1.7 terabit per second attack, which right. happens to be that largest attack we've ever seen as a result of Memcached. Hmm. Um, and so um, actually in, in one of the reports that we just published in February, if anybody's interested, um, you can just go to netscout.com slash threat report, you can download it. There's there's a periodic table of DDoS attack uh, vectors in there. I, hmm. I think it's like page 10, if I remember. Um, but it has, it has all of the vectors on there that we know about. So it goes through like ARMS, it goes through COAP, which is like a protocol that runs on IoT devices. Um, and it lists in the top right corner, the maximum amplification factor that we've seen. Right below that, there's, there's little five little radials. And those go anywhere from like 100,000 up to millions. And that indicates uh, how many of these reflectors we know about in the wild. Um, and now we're really conservative about how we scan. So we're not just like blasting everything all day, all, all the time. We basically send one request at something per day to see if it responds in a certain way. Because we don't want to add to the saturation of the network, especially right. now, right? Um, and so we want to make sure that we're being very conservative with this. There are other scanners out there that just blast you all day long. and They'll just send as many packets as they want. Um, and so they might have more numbers than we do, uh, but we try to be conservative. Um, and so, but even so, you can look at protocols like SIP, and there's like 9 million plus uh, reflectors amplifiers out there. Um, you can look at DNS and we're between one to 8 million um, different reflectors amplifiers out there. Um, and, and it's notable because when we actually start digging into these attacks that we're seeing, I already told you DNS, NTP, CLDAP, those are our top attacks, right? Right. Um, when you actually start looking at how many of these reflectors amplifiers attackers are actually using, you start to get a picture of, well, what could an attack look like versus what attacks we're actually seeing. And the interesting thing is, it's like for some of these protocols, attackers are using such as a minute portion of the available reflectors, and yet they're still achieving huge volumes. A good example of this is a protocol I just mentioned called COAP. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we did this case study to look at these different vectors. Because you would think like, if a researcher comes out and says, hey, Attackers are exploiting this vector to do reflection amplification for DDoS attacks. Uh, and the logical next step is that, well, let's secure those. Let's make it so that that doesn't actually happen anymore. Just like if a vulnerability exists on, a, on something, we patch it. Right. So you would think that that happens in this space. And the reality is, is it doesn't really. Um, most vectors remain relatively flat. In other words, uh, how, how many servers existed a month ago still exist today. Some of them actually grow. Uh, Co-app is, like I said, is, a, is an interesting one because it exists in IoT devices. Right. And the growth of IoT devices on the internet is, is just astronomical. Um, Verizon predicts that this year alone, 20.4 billion IoT devices will connect to the internet every day. And that's just one statistic. If you look right. at organizations like Statista, you'll see that by 2023 or 2025, they're projecting like 170 billion plus IoT devices, which is just nuts, right? Right. And so you see more of these devices, which means you see more devices that are vulnerable to this reflection amplification. And so that vector actually grows. So why do you think it is that they're not being patched or what is it about IoT devices in particular that makes it you know, maybe harder to secure or patch? Sure. So I think the biggest, the biggest issue here is that manufacturers have no 
um, urge to do this and they have no oversight that says they must do this. Because think about it from a manu manufacturer's perspective. I, I want to create as many auto devices as possible. I want to get them on the shelves as fast as I can. I want them to be able to be available for customers to buy at any time, which means they might sit on the shelves for a while. They might sit in warehouses for a while. And I want to make them user-friendly. Right. And I want them to get out fast. And I want to manufacture these as cheap as I can. So there's a number of problems in that scenario. One, if I'm doing it for really cheap, it means I'm not spending the time on security like I should be. Mm -hmm. uh, if I want to keep them on the shelves for a while, it means they're sitting on the shelves for months without ever receiving any kind of patches or updates or security fixes. And then if I want to have ease of use, I'm going to have a lot less options as a user to buy this thing to actually go in and change up my configuration settings. Um, and so there's very few actual laws that mandate certain types of security. There's, there's a few of them now. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, some of the, the internet industry standards organizations are, are pushing for more security here. Um, California put, passed a, a bill for all of their IoT manufacturers that says, hey, you must have some semblance of security on these devices, but the uh, reasonable security that they have is kind of open for interpretation. So what does that exactly mean? And so you have all these things kind of combining and then you have the exponential growth of IoT devices. That creates a massive problem. Right. Um, and, and most users, when they get something, they plug it in and they want to use it, right? It's right. Christmas morning. I get five new tech gadgets because I'm a tech nerd. And every single one of them connects to the internet. That makes every single one of them an IoT device. Right. It's the first thing that I do when I plug it in Christmas morning and turn it on and start using it, go into my admin panel and change my username and password. Probably not, right? right. Um, and the reality is, uh, another study we did about mm, almost a year ago now, within five minutes of an IoT device connecting online, it is getting brute force attacked for default usernames and passwords. Within five minutes. Wow. And then within 24 hours, you're having exploitation attempts thrown at it for known exploit vectors. And so, I mean, unless you're the kind of person that you don't do anything else until you lock down your IoT device, which, I mean, come on, let's face it, how many of us actually do that? Even me as a security researcher, right. I don't do that. So um, it, it's just one of those things that like, it's going to continue to be a problem until um, really like laws are put into place that this must happen, right? right. And, until manufacturers get serious about securing these devices. And, and unfortunately, it's not happening fast enough today. Right. And I think there's a, one of the other things, especially for, for some of the devices, there's limited space, there's limited memory, there's, you know, it's a, you know, and so the yeah. idea of having to put in all of the software to allow for an update or something right. probably is also problematic in its own way. Yeah, I tell you what, like a year, uh, a little over a year ago, my wife and I um, uh, were expecting our third child. And for the first two, we didn't have any any kind of video monitoring. We didn't have any like monitors for their, their baby rooms that that connected to the internet. And we figured, well, let's just, let's just get a video monitor this time. Uh, and then, then we got to thinking like, well, what if this connects to the internet? Right. What if we can't secure it? What if somebody can hack into this? Do we want them looking at our child? Like, wh right. you know, what does this mean? And so when I started researching it and I started looking at these different things, um, we ended up going with one that doesn't actually operate with any kind of Wi-Fi. It's just uses radio signals, just like, you know, most monitors do, because I didn't want to have the, I didn't want to get a monitor and then connect it to the Wi-Fi and really not be able to manage it because there's no administration panel. There's no right. ability for me to go in and change passwords. Um, so we just didn't even want to go down that route. And so those are the kinds of things that I think about. Uh, but even still, like even thinking consciously about that, there's so many devices that come into our home that are insecure. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just kind of a frightening picture when you look at it.
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, my wife and I went through the same thing when we were looking at uh, baby monitors and stuff. I was like, in the end, we just decided right. not to, you know, it's like, we'll just go with, you know, we don't want anything on the internet uh, the connecting right? to the network. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So like when people ask me, what is, what is the thing you fear most? Um, in the coming like scenario for like threat intel in the security aspect and, and really IoT is it. Um, because more and more we're bringing it into our homes. Uh, enterprises are allowing bring your own devices. Mm-hmm. So many things are, are entering things. And the reality is, is that just because you're behind a firewall doesn't mean you're protected anymore. There's tons and tons of malware out there now that have proof of concept to actually get around firewalls. Um, and so enterprises might say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we let people bring their IT devices in, but they're behind a firewall. So it's all good. Well, not really. Right. Um, and so this is something that everybody needs to be concerned about. Well, not to mention the IoT device started off on the other side of that firewall. So who knows yeah. what it's bringing in? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. And then what are you connecting to your internal networks? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's really interesting um, when, when I look at this kind of space and, and what is capable and, and what attackers are looking for. And, and, and more and more, we're seeing attackers do um, what EPT adversaries do. They do the recon first, right? right. They, they look at the networks, they figure out how things are connected, how things respond. Um, in fact, uh, some, some notable outages that happened several months ago um, basically took down uh, portions of, of a very prominent online retailer. Um, and, you know, I, I won't go to the name, but if you do a little bit of research, you'll be able to find out who this is. And it turns out what the attackers did is they actually figured out um, where the geographic footprint was for trusted networks. And I say trusted networks, these are basically inside what is kind of, a, a, a let, let's put it in the terms of like Windows administration. So like a, a trust forest, mm-hmm. right? So they're inside this, this network uh, boundary that says, hey, if anything connects from within this boundary, go ahead and let it through. We'll do some other security checks later on down the road, right? right? Because if I was outside that and I launched a DDoS attack, it's just gonna, it's gonna fall flat, right? It's never gonna go anywhere. We've got mitigations in place. Um, but they identified that footprint. They figured out how to get some uh, servers inside that perimeter to mm-hmm. essentially amplify this traffic and start doing the DDoS attacks. And so they already mitigated or, or bypassed that first layer of protection. Um, and then what else they do is they start doing, um, is it is a down um, type requests, right? Right. So whether they're looking at down detector or they're sending, sending ping requests, um, they're monitoring the efficacy of their attacks. And is my DDoS attack actually taking this down? And if it's not, let me pivot. Let me add a new vector. Let me change vectors. Or let me add a new tactic. And so the adversaries are getting really, really smart about this. And they're really agile and able to pivot really quickly. So what are, I mean, what are some of these people after? Like, what's the point? So, I mean, obviously in the gaming one, financial. Right. Right. Um, You know, another, (laughs) I, I laugh every time I tell a story. So, about eight months ago, we had a report come out and we had uh, what we would call SOC stories. So security operating center stories. We have a, uh, what we call Arbor Cloud, which they do um, basically uh, manage services for DDoS mitigation. They do it for a lot of like organizations. They do a lot of for universities and stuff. And they actually had one incident where um, a university had reached out and said, hey, uh, our services are down. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and in working with the university, the SOC was able to determine that it was midterms and a student didn't want to take his test and launched, uh, paid to launch an attack at the testing center's uh, IP space. Wow. And took it down. And so, so, you know, that's an obvious motivation, right? Just why not pay 50 bucks? I can get out of taking this test. I can kick it down the road. I have more time to study, whatever I want to do, right? Right. Um, it's interesting now though, because we don't have that happening right now because students are not actually in school. 
they're right. doing everything online. And so like, it, it's, it's really interesting to actually kind of see that dynamic where you see the education kind of go down in the number of attacks and you see like the broadband operators go up. So there's more gaming happening and you see that kind of disparity. Um, and so like when we look at motivations, that's, that's the predominant way. Like the, you hear about the extortions because the extortions make, make news, right? Everybody's right. interested to see, oh, somebody exploiting money from you. Um, that happens still from time to time. Um, but it's not nearly as much. It's not like when Lizard Stressor or Lizard Squad first came out and started doing their extortion attempts. Um, because a lot of times those are those are kind of showboating. Um, and every now and then we'll see something where, okay, I, I'm going to demonstrate or I'm going to um, extort you for something. And if you don't, I'm going to take you down. And sometimes it's, it's still successful. In fact, uh, one of the things that we actually recently saw, um, I think it would have been toward the end of last year, uh, we saw attacks against financial institutions in Asia Minor and Europe. Hmm. And what was notable about those is that there was some kind of showboating going on between uh, adversaries in the underground. Like, oh, look what I can do, or look oh, what right. I can ensure, or here's like, you know, my best attack, right? Right. Um, and so, the, like, we didn't, we, we heard rumors about maybe extortion against these financial institutions, but we could never prove that. Um, and what we saw, though, is all these attacks going at these financial institutions. And what actually happened is that the, the network pipes that they took to get there was traversing satellite telecom because the financial institutions were actually using satellite IP space to host some of their services. Um, and even though satellite wasn't the target, right. uh, they ended up going down because there was so much traffic going against these financial institutions. And so, you know, you might say, oh, they took out satellite. What was their motivation behind that? It was literally nothing. There was no motivation behind that. Right? Right. It just happened. Right. Um, so sometimes it's really hard to get into the motivation of these guys. But uh, more often than not, it's tied to financial reasons. Whereas previously, uh, maybe like five, six years ago, a lot of those hacktivism demonstration. And that certainly still happens. Right. Um, in fact, um, those protests, um, I think it was Telegram messaging services, right? There's some mm -hmm. protests and a lot of the protesters were using this platform to communicate back and forth, um, you know, to, to get around like police uh, barricades and stuff like that. And actually there was a attack against that mess messaging platform from a foreign government that took it down. Right. Um, and so like it disrupted Telegram. And, and I think we've got some uh, communication about that on our website, but yeah. Um, so there, there is still some of that kind of hacktivism type thing or suppression um, but by and large, most of it is re revolving around kind of um, some sort of monetary gain for themselves or some sort of personal gain for themselves. So maybe we have uh, political rivals in different countries and, and they have a polling site and they want to take that polling site down. Maybe they'll launch DDoS against that. So right. no longer are we just in a hacktivism type realm. Now we're, our motivations are more geared towards what can I gain? What about for like the homeowner and the IoT devices there? Like if, like, what am I worrying about? Like... So what if somebody breaks into my light bulb, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the biggest thing that you're going to have to worry about there, uh, especially if you're talking about in the, in the sense of DDoS, right, is being part of DDoS attacks. Right. Because if you are and there's a large attack going on, your network is going to get really saturated, really slow. You might not be able to stream. Or you might have connection issues. Maybe I'm trying to get into my banking account for something critical, right? Right. So you might see your internet capability diminish greatly, Right. Um, and, the, and the cool thing is that with a lot of these ISPs, like that outage doesn't last very long, at least not in terms of DDoS attacks. Right. Um, and so, but, but there is that possibility, right? Or if you're constantly involved in these types of things, um, you, you might risk having some internet connection issues. So um, 
do ISPs ever monitor and reach out like, hey, homeowner, we we continue to see or detect problems coming from? There are some. Um, in fact, I was actually playing around with my own Google Wi-Fi router and I, I sort of logged in. Um, actually, even my Netgear one did it, if I recall correctly. But if you actually log into the admin panel, depending on what ISP you have, I have Verizon and they're actually pretty good about this. So when I actually logged in, I could actually see messages uh, for the type of traffic that, that was coming across my network. So there is possibility, but I don't think they're going to just like find your email and email you, right? right. Um, so unless you're tech savvy and you can log into your, your home router or your, your what a modem, whatever you're using, chances are you're never going to see this. Uh, you might experience some noticeable lag if something is ongoing like that. So, I mean, it's definitely worth um, understanding and learning how to do this right. just to secure your own things, right? Because if, if an adversary managed to install, let's just say Mirai on it um, to be part of these, what's to say they couldn't install something else and infect the rest of your home network? Right. If it's just being used as like a reflection amplification vector, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do unless you know how to patch your devices or all your IoT devices or sufficiently put it behind a firewall that it's not going to respond to certain requests. That gets a little bit more complicated. And that really the responsibility lies on the manufacturers to figure out how they secure devices better. Yeah, absolutely. Also, thinking back to the whole, if Verizon were to call me, I'd probably just think it was another phishing attack. (laughs) (laughs) Can you log into your router? (laughs) Yes, I I, I feel you there. There's there's so much of that going around. In fact, I was just on some calls um, looking at kind of this pandemic thing and like just the sheer volume of spam messaging going around right now for like the pandemic theme stuff and COVID is just, it's insane. It, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually pretty impressed with our uh, vendor that's doing our anti-phishing, uh, anti-spear phishing, um, because they've also included like banners for like, hey, this mentions COVID-19, like mm-hmm. be really extra special careful. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, we we definitely try to monitor stuff like that here too. So as much as we're a DDoS shop, mm-hmm. and, and we're all of our stuff pays the bills, we also have uh, a feed of indicators. And those indicators are fed by examining malware and spam campaigns and exploitation um, different links and things like that. So we actually extract all those IOCs and we push those to our customers for protection. So we're securing you against DDoS. We have mitigation capabilities. We have countermeasures. Uh, and I guess what? We have this huge list of IOCs for the latest and greatest threats. Um, because we understand, like, right, DDoS isn't the only thing attacking you as an organization. Right. Um, and so a lot of the devices where our indicators go kind of sit on the perimeter or edge of uh, enterprise's environment. Um, and so it's not, it, it, sometimes we say it's the last line of defense, maybe, maybe it isn't, um, but organizations often have like IDS and IPS, so they have some sort of firewall with different rules and IOCs fed in. Um, but you'd be surprised, even, even sitting as far out on the boundary of people's networks as we are, we still see a ton of malicious traffic going back and forth. And so we try to block all of those command controls because um, it's, it's a very real threat. And, and that's you know, part of the research that we've done um, is along those lines as well. But again, like I said, predominantly DDoS is what we focus on. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Um, anything else? Any other things you want to cover? Or? You know, I was just going through my notes here to see if there's anything else that I left off. And I think we pretty much covered most things. Um, there was one kind of uh, little anecdote that I was going to pull in. One was related to Mirai and the other one was related to um, so I mentioned before, we, we examine these different DDoS vectors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we look at how many servers are being used in an attack. And here's, here's just like a theoretical approach to this, right? So uh, CLDAP has anywhere between 10 to 20,000 servers that we know about. 
Um, whereas DNS has like one to eight million, COAP might have like five or six million. Um, when we started looking at the utilization aspect of these, um, in, in a single CL DEP attack, actually a single largest CL DEP attack that we observed, we had X number of, of IP addresses as like being part of that attack, which translated to less than 0.5% of the available devices they could have used. And yet the size of that attack was still greater than 300 gigabits per second. And so, I mean, we're talking like a very, very minuscule portion of the available reflectors for co-op that were used in an attack and it still had tremendous volume. Um, now, what happens when an attacker utilizes the entire spectrum of these, right? Is there even a tool that can do that today? So there's there's some kind of theoretical applications here. Um, when we look at CLDAP, CLDAP is one of the top three vectors that we continually see. That one has very high utilization and it's a very effective way for attackers to, to go after things. And so we'll see as high as 85% utilization. But again, we're only talking tens of thousands of servers versus millions. Um, and so it's, it's just a very interesting kind of, uh, when you think about this and, and what it means with more and more IoT devices uh, going online. Yeah, I mean, the um, the whole notion of, I mean, I think it sounds like attackers have taken sort of what on the other side of the equation has always been defense in depth. It sounds like, well, we're gonna use attack in depth. We're gonna go with multiple different vectors um, across lots of different devices. And that's just it, right? A defender has, to, has so much footprint that they have to mitigate and pr protect against. An attack only needs one in. Right. And so they can they can launch the entire kitchen sink at somebody until they find a gap in the armor somewhere. Um, right. The defender only has to slip up once. Right. Um, and it's it's a very difficult job as a defender for sure. Yes, yeah, definitely asymmetric. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yes. well, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I talked yeah, about Mirai. Um, so so we also partnered with uh, Reversing Labs, which is a very big kind of like virus total. Um, they have tons of like billions and billions of malware samples. Um, and one of the things that they do for us is they look, they help us look at kind of the history of Mirai. And they do some machine learning to figure out like what's a variant, what's a code branch, how different is it from another. And so we set certain thresholds and we want to figure out like what is what does it look like in the wild for Mirai? And every single year, 2017, 18, 19, we saw exponential increases in the number of Mirai samples in the wild. Um, and I think we saw uh, from 2018 to 2019, it was a 57% increase in the number of samples circulating in a while. These are number of unique samples. Right, wow. So somewhere in terms of like 220,000 unique uh, Mirai samples floating around. Um, and that's not like the other code branches like Satori or Echobot or some of these other ones that come in online. In fact, uh, Echobot was a, a relatively new one and that one piece of malware alone had seven, 70 different exploitation attempts built in that would automatically try to propagate itself, right? right. Um, and then another thing that we saw is, is increasing in brute force attempts mm -hmm. and increasing in exploitation attempts. 51% um, I think for brute forcing and 87% for exploitation. Um, Do you yeah. think the brute forcing is because computational power is just increasing and so therefore brute force attacks are actually more viable? Maybe, maybe I, well, I, they've always been viable. So we're like, right. great, Mariah's always relied on this brute forcing mechanism. And the sad part is because there's no IoT security, it works. Right. And so you can literally log on to a manufacturer's website and figure out what the default credentials are for one of their devices. And let me just add that to a dictionary that I'm going to distribute with Mirai. And now right. I have this automatic propagating thing that's going to be wildly successful. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so when we actually compare 
the brute forcing attempts versus exploitation, brute forcing is still key. And it has been ever since Mariah came on the scene um, with the dining attacks back in 2016. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, so we just continue to see this, this astronomical shift. And even worse, Mirai has been ported to over 16 different OS architectures, right? And so it right. doesn't really matter what kind of device you're running. Uh, there's probably a version of Mirai out there for it. Right, probably more than one. <laughs> probably more than one, yeah. So it, again, like I said, this goes back to IoT, and this is, right. this is my biggest concern. So if I, if I lift you with nothing else during this podcast, uh, IoT is a concerning aspect, and it should be definitely taken seriously. Right. I think uh, if nothing else, go and change your default username and password on your IoT devices. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. Right. Which I mean, if you think back to um, the old router days, right? The the router that Verizon shipped to me used to have default username and password. Mm-hmm. Now at least mm-hmm. they have a they put it on there and it's randomized and it's specific to the device. But you know, um, the sad part is, is you can still find those online. You can oh, still sure. find some of them. Yeah, because they're 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 specific to a model. They might be an alphanumeric with special characters randomized. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still like printed on the device itself, right? So right. at one point or another, some of those make it online. Um, yeah, still go in and change your password if you can. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, been a pleasure. All right, take care. Take care. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry Podcast and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.